1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the word, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his infallible, holy, and errant word. First off, this is a very odd passage for me to be preaching the Sunday after Valentine's Day. Very odd. Secondly, by the end of our walk through this passage, I pray that necessary weight will have been applied to ladies and to the men in this room. Thirdly, the passage here highlights in many ways why we preach expositionally here through whole books of the Bible. Because let's face it, I would have never just randomly dropped this bad boy to preach (laughs) the Sunday after Valentine's Day. But the fact that we're just preaching through the book of Corinthians allows me the privilege to walk through uncomfortable texts, even like these, and to walk with them with you. That's the, that's the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible. So as our, through our life together and our time together as a church, this is what we want to do. We want to pursue to get as much of the whole counsel of God as we possibly can. And in the journey of trying to get to the whole counsel of God, in other words, just preaching straight through books of the Bible, there are times that we are going to reach counsel that is going to be very uncomfortable for some. There are times that we're going to reach counsel that's going to be very uncomfortable for others. And then there are times that are just we're going to reach counsel that's going to be uncomfortable for all of us. But more than anything, we want to know Jesus. And we want to know the heart of Jesus, and we want to walk as closely as we can in line with his heart. So this morning, I want you to walk with me through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Let's ask one question just off the top. Why are head coverings so important here? Why are they important? Why does Paul spend time even addressing them? Well, it appears that here in ancient Corinth, And also in other locations around antiquity, 
Head coverings were a symbol that helped display and acknowledge the acceptance of the roles and the distinctions between man and woman, husband and wife. For a woman in antiquity to not wear one would probably have been perceived by the watching world as a way for that woman to rebel against that notion and to rebel against that distinction, to rebel against the distinction that they were in fact different from man. And so their refusal to wear one was a declaration that, that women were not only equal with man in essence and in dignity and, and worth, but that they were indistinguishable from man in role and authority in the home and in the church. Now remember, Paul has just completed a correction of the Corinthians on their use of knowledge. That's what chapters 8 through 10 were about. And if, if you have not spent time uh, walking with us through chapter 8 through 10, you can go back, you can listen to it on YouTube or sermon.net or on the app. It's all there for you. But he has spent time walking through 8 through 10, providing a correction to the Corinthians on their use of knowledge and on their use of rights and on their use of freedoms as it relates to food offered to idols. And you can bet... Um, pretty reasonably that a correction, that a similar correction based on similar circumstances is happening right now. In other words, there is some knowledge that has been acquired by the Corinthians. And based on that knowledge, they are now acting. One scholar captures well the imaginary conversation that the Corinthians more than likely had with Paul in their letters before this current moment in Paul's teaching. And it probably went something like this, according to him. He said, Paul, we want you to know that we have faithfully kept the traditions that you passed on to us. But some of us are wondering whether these traditions have been faithfully implemented, even in the way we have worshipped since you founded this church. For instance, as things are now, our men come to worship with their heads uncovered. But women have been covering their heads. Some of us wonder why we continue to distinguish between men and women in this way, since among the traditions you pass on to us is the fact that we are all parts of God's new creation and that in this new creation, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, or even male and female. More and more women are out in public these days with their heads uncovered just like men. Some find this very offensive, but others feel that the offended are merely old-fashioned and, and that the gospel would have us celebrate our sameness in Christ, end quote. So he's saying this is probably the conversation that they're having with Paul as Paul begins to address them in chapter 11. You know, too many times today and even throughout history, men have twisted their understanding of authority and their understanding of their distinction as men. Too many times men throughout history have used their authority in order to excuse dominance. And they have used their authority as an excuse for dominance and arrogance and inequality. And the influences of the world and the flesh and the devil can take a godly and holy idea like the authority and turn it on his head into something vicious. And soon a godly idea like authority begins to look like dominance. It begins to assume the role of dominance. Soon a godly thing like equality and dignity with distinction and, and humble leadership will soon begin to look like men making women look and feel inferior and subservient and diminished. 
And this is where we get ideas like, I'm the man, and I go where I want to go, and I do what I want to do, and, and, and when I want to do it. And, and this is where we get constant reminders of who's in charge, and we get constant ideas like, uh, you're the woman, so your only concern is how, how, to, how to serve me, so make sure my dinner's ready on time, and make sure this house is clean all, uh, at all times, and make sure these kids have whatever they need, and make sure you're, um, you're available for my pleasure at my beckoning call. Sin can also take this misunderstanding of headship and authority even farther or further to the tragic and unfortunate end of abuse. Verbal, emotional, and sadly even physical and sexual. And so it is with joy that we celebrate, that we all celebrate the creation of man and woman, both made in the image and likeness of God, according to Genesis chapter 1. It is with joy and excitement that we read verses like those found in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 27, where it says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All of us receive that great blessing. However, just like with so many other areas in culture and history, in an effort to correct the course of male dominance and male abuse and female subservience, what often happens is that we overcorrect the course. And we fundamentally transform God's vision for equality by removing all distinctions between man and woman. And we end up taking an unbalanced and irreverent approach to our distinct God-given roles as men and as women. We say things like, well, God works through women just like he does men. There's no distinction between us. Remember, God told us, or through Paul, he told us that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. And all that's very true, but missing some very important context. You see, when the truth of God's gift of equality is being used to abolish the truth of God's good gift of distinction, then we lose the course altogether. And we invite all sorts of confusion and all sorts of conflict into our worlds. Distinction is important. Authority is important in our discussion of Christianity. And it appears that the women of Corinth were taking the ideal of equality to diminish the God-given gift of distinction. Verse 3, it says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Although Paul wants to deal with the matter of head coverings here, we should all pay particular attention to how he goes about dealing with these matters. He doesn't start with the instruction Here's how to wear head coverings. Here's all of the reasons why you should wear head coverings based on all these different practical reasons. Rather, he begins with the reason why head coverings should be worn in, the, in grounding it in a theological purpose. 
In fact, head coverings is not the main point of this text. It's the vehicle by which the main message is ultimately being carried in this text. Paul is trying to address the subtle forms of rebellion that are produced when our attention begins to turn more on what we desire to do versus what God is saying for us to do. So instead of Paul beginning with the instruction on head coverings, treating the symptoms instead of the disease, he begins attacking the true source of the illness, which is indifference for God-established distinction between man and woman. Again, he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Here's another question this morning. What does head mean here? Because there's a false notion that tends to jump out in this verse at times in order to kind of lighten the weight of the verse a bit. And that is this. The notion goes like this. The word head in this particular passage, which in the Greek is the word kephale, does not mean authority, but rather it means source. In other words, some people would say that man's source is Christ and we receive life from Christ and woman's source is, is man because she was taken from man, according to Genesis chapter 2, from out of the rib, out of the rib of man was made woman. And then Christ's source is God, the Father, possibly maybe pointing to his birth from Mary through the Holy Spirit. But the biggest problem with that understanding of kephale is that no noticeable place in any historical Greek literature, which this, this book and all the other New Testament books are written in, no noticeable place or notable place in any of historical Greek literature is defining head kephale in that way. Whenever you see it in the Greek, it always is seen as head in the sense of authority. Head in the sense of authority. Do you understand that? But we also have other examples where Paul uses this word, and it is pretty clear that he has head in the sense of authority in mind. So we don't even have to look to the other Greek literature. We can just look at what Paul says to understand that. Take, for example, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills, in, who fills all in all. In other words, Paul is saying that God, the Father, gave Christ all things and gave it to him as, or gave him head over all things, authority over all things. It wasn't just simply that they were, they were receiving life and nourishment from Christ. He was their authority. And then Paul uses the same word, kephale, in Ephesians chapter 5. And he says this, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So no Greek literature uses this ideal of head as source, it's tip or kephale as source. It's typically kephale as authority. And Paul uses kephale in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 5, all in the same manner, all in the same way. Uh, authority, 
Another problem that begins to shape, uh, take shape in this ideal of kafale being used as a source is that it infers Christ himself had a source. Christ is the source of man, is basically what we're saying. Man is the source of woman, is basically what we're saying if we use that to, say, if we use that to mean source. And God the Father is the source of the uncreated Christ. And I don't believe that is what Paul has in mind. So for those reasons, we're going to say that kafale is not talking about source. Kafale is talking about authority. So if we take it to believe what we believe that, it, that, that it's saying, or if we, if we take it to mean what we believe what it's saying, there's not only heavy implications for woman, but there are heavy, heavy implications for man as well. Again, the head of every man is Christ. That's the first implication that we have to address. We can't blow by that one. God is man's head. All men will stand before God and give an account to the manner in which they have dealt with God's daughters. And God, does that make sense, brothers? Husbands are called to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. They are called to live with their wives in a peaceful and understanding way, showing honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. First Peter chapter three, verse seven says, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you see that raising? You know, when, when, when we wanna say, well, wait a second, we're talking, about, we're talking about authority here, so that means I must be less than, and you see Peter immediately raising and saying, heirs of life, we are, we are heirs together of the life that we've received in Christ. Does that make sense? And so husbands are charged and commanded by God to walk in this manner with women, to lead them humbly, to nourish, to protect, to cover. In other words, how we treat them, whether we honor them or objectify them, whether we treat women as sisters and daughters or as flesh to be abused and tarnished and then cast aside. How we treat them will be accounted for by their Father God and their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the second statement's implication is for women. So the first statement, the implication is for men. The second statement, the implication is for women. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of woman, the head of wife is the man. In the same passage of scripture that we just referenced, Ephesians 5, where it, taught, where it gives that instruction to the husband, listen to what it says about the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24 of that same chapter, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1, the same chapter that we just read to the men, this is what it says to the women. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be warned without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then it says this, do not let your adorning be external 
the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, is he saying that you can't dress up? No. What he's saying is that your concern, your primary concern is not what you are putting on externally, but what you are putting on internally. In other words, the more lasting, godly, and beautiful way that a woman adorns herself is in the manner in which she adorns her spirit. It's how she dresses her soul. It's what's being said. What is precious to God, sisters? Is it clothing the exterior? Peter says, no, it's clothing yourself with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Dear sisters, we live in a selfie age where now you can pull up to any random gas station at any moment <laughs> and see somebody in the middle of a glam photo shoot with their phone, you know, you know or, video, or video shoot for TikTok at any moment, at any time of night. And so I know we live in a selfie age where it's all about the presentation of ourselves and young ladies are posing for the gram or shooting a video for, for, for TikTok. And the pressure has never been greater in your lifetime to, to place your external appearance in the primary, to place your external appearance as the on constant and on prominent display. So much so that therapists and psychologists alike are noticing a significant uptick in teenage anxiety and a significant downtick in teenagers' comfort in their own skin. But how Peter is saying, what Peter is saying here is that you should not place your primary focus there. Your most, your most diligent effort should be dedicated to working on the inside. Growing patient rather than abrasive. Being verbally nurturing and not verbally destructive. How often are you making diligent efforts to work on your soul? Consider how deceptive the devil is in this regard. While culture rewards us all, not just women, but men, all of us, for our assertiveness and our outspokenness and, and our abrasiveness, here we find God bestowing honor upon women with gentle and quiet spirits. Now, gentle and quiet isn't meant to interpret, uh, it, it isn't interpreted as you being mute. It just means that you don't always have something to say. It means that you learn to take the gentle and quiet route towards influence sometimes. Now, the last implication here is that is the most important implication for us because here he says, Christ is the head of man. In other words, man will be held accountable for how he treats the daughters of God. Then he says, man is the head of woman. 
In other words, yes, I am calling you to submit in healthy ways to your husbands. But then he says, and the head of Christ is God the Father. Meaning that gender roles aren't just a societal issue. Gender roles are actually a Christian issue. Gender roles are actually a Christ-exalting issue. Gender roles are actually a gospel-displaying issue. Christ is calling the daughters of God to submit as he has submitted to God the Father. John chapter 15, verse 9, it says that as the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Listen, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John chapter 8 says, so Jesus said, John chapter 8, verse 28 says, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. That's Jesus. You see, in our sinfulness, we have destroyed the picture of God or the picture that God has for what healthy authority looks like. We have destroyed what, what the, the picture that God has of laying down one's life for the other. And we have destroyed the picture of what authority looks like and sacrificing for the, for the greater good. And we have destroyed the picture of what healthy, uh, healthy authority looks like and being quicker to hold, my, hold oneself accountable for the failures of the, uh, of the whole instead of just simply holding myself accountable for all the whole's victories. However, in our overcorrection, we have destroyed the picture for what healthy submission looks like. You see, our vision for authority is skewed. And then in our overcorrection, our vision for submission became skewed. Why should we even be remotely surprised that our relationships are so broken? Authority is skewed. Submission is skewed. It's all twisted in how we understand it. So sisters, listen, I get it. I get it. Men have not always held the fort down as it pertains to presenting an adequate picture of what healthy, godly headship looks like. I get it. However, don't diminish God's beautiful gift of distinction and in so doing, diminish what he himself did. God himself submitted. Does that make sense to you, saints? Verse 4, it says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. You see, the need for the covering here was because Paul did not think it wise for women to continue or discontinue making the important distinctions in their culture between man and woman. The covering signified respect for the authority of their male husbands and leaders. And the absence of that veil signified an absence of respect. 
How, much, how might this look in our current day and in our current age? It's not going to look where women all wear head coverings. That's not going to necessarily be the solution or the answer, right? It's not going to note distinction. This is a different culture, different day. But where are the distinctions that we could hold in place in order to ensure that it is clear that, yes, we honor this God, God, godly and divine order between men and women while holding together the equality and the dignity that both men and women possess before the eyes of God? What does that look like? Verse 6 says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Basically, Paul is saying to us, what is Paul saying to this culture with all of this language? Paul is saying, don't remove the veil of distinction. Don't remove the veil of distinction. The secular world strives earnestly to remove the veil and to remove the covering that distinguishes godly, healthy husband headship from godly, healthy, wifely submission. And the world blurs the lines between headship and dominance and between, and between submission and subservience. And we get wrapped up in that as a church. We get wrapped up in that in such a way that as a result, we begin to blur the lines as well. And rather than lead in a healthy way, we see men lose their balance and they grow dominant and abusive or they grow passive and feeble in their homes. And rather than submit to the leadership of their husband in a healthy way, we see women lose the balance and they grow subservient and slave-like in their home. Or they rise up to constantly undercut their husbands in every way. But we have to hold the tension. Paul is saying, don't lose the veil. Don't lose the distinction that is present between the man and the woman. Verse 8 says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created from woman, but woman from man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head, because of the angels. As Paul often does, whenever he makes a point about roles of women and roles of men and Christ-exalting headship, he never grounds his points in just simply the culture. He always grounds his points in some created order that he's working from. Genesis chapter 2 is where he's working from here. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit from him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord... God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up, or closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is at, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Why should the wife maintain a distinction that displays, um, that displays this authority? Because man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That's the distinction, Paul says. But notice something very important. Notice something extremely important. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. That's what it says in verse 11. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. In Christianity, men and women interactions are, are far more honoring and far more gracious because they are in the Lord. Outside of Christianity, women did not enjoy the same esteem and the same honor in this context. So although Christianity in many of today's circles is considered chauvinistic, it, is in, it, it in fact bestows more honor on women than many societies in the history in our history, in our world. You see, in Christianity, what's supposed to be seen is this mutual respect that says, yes, woman was created from man, but man is not independent of woman. Man came forth out of woman. And so the same honor that I would treat or the same honor that I'm asking for as one that came from me, I should be given, giving as one that came from you. Does that make sense? That, seriously, does, does that make sense? This is the difference and the distinction between, between, between Christianity and other, and other religions and Christianity and other cultural, you know, cultural ways of seeing this. When we hear the distinction, when we hear about these roles, we immediately bristle at them because we think to ourselves, I know where this is going. Where this is going is dominance and subservience. This is where this is going. But in Christianity, what's supposed to be happening is that my understanding of this is that just like you came from me, I came from you. We need one another. And so I lead as if I need you. And you submit to my leadership as if you need me. And I lead as if you are equal and that I will have to answer for how I lead you. And you submit as if I am equal and you will have to answer as to how you follow me. Does that make sense? When this is happening, think about the, think about the implications of a marriage when this is happening. Again, we're still talking about rights here. Chapter 8 through chapter 10 leads right into chapter 11. And what was Paul talking about? Laying down rights. And so as he gets into this discussion about head coverings, what is Paul talking about? Well, Paul, I got freedom in Christ. There's neither slave nor, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither man nor woman. We're all one in Christ. And so Paul, let's move up, remove all the distinctions because of this freedom. And what is Paul saying? Lay down your rights. Not just man, but woman. Both lay down your rights. Men lead with humility, lead with grace, lead with mercy, lead with gentleness as if you will answer one day for how you lead. And women, follow your husband with mercy, follow your husband with gentleness, follow your husband with, with, uh, with humility, as if you will answer one day to how you follow. 
Paul says, man comes from, or woman comes from man, man comes from woman. But then he says, all things are from God. In light of the discussion that Paul is currently engaged in, this, this statement brings two points to mind. All things from God, which means we are all dependent on God. Man is not independent from woman because God has saw fit that woman be the means by which man is born. And woman is not independent from man because God has saw fit that woman be created from man and for man. And all are dependent on God. Yes, we are dependent on one another, but we are first and foremost dependent on him, the creator of all things, which, ma which means that no matter what each other is doing, we are responding to who? To God. Doesn't matter the condition of the husband. Doesn't matter the condition of the spouse. We all are going or we all are responding as if we are dependent on God, the one that created both. And it also means, why is it important, saints? Why is, it, why, is that, why is it important not only in terms of thinking about how we respond, but also how we obey? All things are from God, meaning that, that's a straightforward way of speaking to this subject at hand. In other words, why is it important to honor and respect the unique roles of men and women? Because it is from God. He instituted this order. He instituted the roles. The distinction in the unique design of man and woman is seen, is seen in both creation and in nature. And he instituted it so we follow his divine appointed order. And so you aren't wrestling against one another when you wrestle against these distinctions. You're wrestling against the one who instituted it. All things are from God. For lack of time, there's a lot that we can talk about in this text. We don't have time to talk about it all. So for lack of time, verse 16, it says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The question of the day, at the end of the day, is who defines the manner in which we are to govern our affairs? Paul's point in verse 16 is that if any of you would decide to be in disagreement and continue on in doing your own thing, keep in mind that you aren't just going against me, but you are going against the authority that God has established. You're going against the rule of all the other churches, which of course means that above all else, you're going against God. The question for us as a church is, as we define what it means to be a Christian, how many scriptures and chapters will we skip over to support our own ideas of what it means to be a Christian? Does that make sense? When we get to the places that authority is being defined and, and distinctions are being defined and submission is being defined, will we just skip over those ideas and say, well, I mean, that's not relevant for our day and time, and so we're not interested in those anymore? Or even worse, will we redefine what authority means? And will we redefine what submission means to dominance and subservience? Or will we just let God be God? 
And when God speaks, no matter how uncomfortably he speaks to us, we seek to listen and we seek to obey. And when he says that there are distinctions between you, then we seek to listen and we seek to obey. Now, how those distinctions are defined looks different in a lot of homes. Does that make sense? So I'm not, don't worry, there will not be a part two to this where I tell you that women should cook this, men should do that. That's not going to be part two of this sermon. The distinctions look different in every home. But here's what's clear biblically, is that the man has been placed in the home to serve, to serve as the head of the home. When he serves, he is to lay his life down for his family. He is to always be seeking the common good for his family, not his own good. He, is always, he should always be seeking to listen and not, simply be, uh, and not simply speak in his home. He should serve in his leadership position as Christ served in his leadership position when he walked this earth. That is clear in Scripture. And what is also clear in Scripture is that, that, that woman in her home is to submit to that leadership, not as a servant, not subservient, not as an animal, not as someone that is, that is you know, beneath all things, but as serve, serving as an equal. In other words, I'm submitted, but I'm submitted as one who has been given dignity and given worth and given, uh, and given equality from God. So I'm not less than you because I'm submitting. I'm with you in my submission. These are things that, are, that Scripture has clearly defined. And no matter how uncomfortable they are for the culture, we have to be committed to the one who has called us enough to walk in it despite the culture's persistence that we walk otherwise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we give you